Um, the more that the more they, the speeches that come, it seems like every one of them is getting a little stronger, a little stronger, a little stronger. At first, they were very careful. They didn't want to be too harsh. But eventually, you know how conversations go. They just get a little more heated, a little more heated as time goes on. Now, Zophar's speech did little to conceal his cruelty. He was, he was quite uh, in chapter 20 that we went through last week. Now, Job, maybe the most blunt of all of them, uh, becomes even more so here in chapter 21. So let's read a couple of verses, and then we'll kind of pick them up as we go. But Job answered and said, Hear diligently my speech, and let this be your consolations. Suffer me that I may speak, and after that I have spoken. Mock on. <laughs> I, I uh, had to laugh when I read that verse, because I don't know how many times... Um, I, Pastor, maybe you've been there too, where, where you say that, and, and that's what you want to say. You know, let me say my piece and then mock on, you know, because you're going to do that way anyway. You're going to come at me again. So uh, that was, uh, it, that's back to the sarcasm. Job was a little bit of a sarcastic guy. As for me, verse 4, is, is my complaint to man? And if it, be, if it were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? Mark me and be astonished and lay your hand upon your mouth. So we'll, we'll pick up these verses as we go through. But Father, we pray that you help us here in these next few minutes uh, be touched with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Job begins this response by with a plea, his plea to his listeners here. Uh, please pay attention to what I have to say. Uh, look at what he says here. Hear diligently my speech. They were obviously not paying attention. So not only to hear, but to hear diligently. I was doing uh, some premarital counseling this week, and and we were talking about this hearing one another. You know, uh, husbands can often hear without hearing, and we've we've all been there where uh, where we've been told that we've been told this before. I, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but uh, I, it's the first time I'm hearing it. Nope, we had the conversation before, and and I, what problem was I was probably looking, and mind was somewhere else, and so. There's hearing, and then there's hearing. And what he's saying here is, hear diligently. I want you to listen to what I have to say. They had made up their mind about Job already. They didn't care what he had to say. And so they weren't listening. And Job pleads to them, listen. Look at the character of the listening here. Verses 2 and 3. Uh, hear diligently my speech, he said in verse 2. And then suffer me that I may speak. These are, these are two important qualities uh, that characterizes good listening. To listen diligently hear diligent in my speech, and to listen patiently. Suffer me that I may speak. To, to be diligent or in your listening is to be attentive to what the other person has to say. Uh, following his arguments, uh, giving him due respect when he speaks, being quiet while others... We, I know we've talked a lot about listening throughout these chapters, but this is such a, a deficit in what they were doing, and it's a deficit in our lives too, because a listener is very rare. Somebody that'll, that will say their piece maybe, but then listen to the response. And you can see here, they, they ha they're made of the same stuff we are. They want to talk, they don't want to listen. And, and a listening is something that's so important. And then to listen patiently. That means they were to hear him out. Let him say his piece. Uh, let him argue his case without interrupting him and turning a deaf ear on him. Now, Christians would do well if we would do these th two things. Listen patiently, listen dil diligently. Uh, I, I'm as guilty more than anybody probably where because as I make my rounds on Sunday morning and try to meet each person and a lot of times I'll ask, you know, how are you doing or how's that going or ask about something a certain, they will say, uh, they will say their piece to me 
and I will walk away and realize I have not the foggiest idea of what was just said because my mind's somewhere else. It's, it's moving along. Your mind gets pretty muddled if you're on Sunday morning running around, and, and uh, so I'm already thinking about the next person I need to see, and there's noise coming from this person's mouth. It is not registering in my ears. So um, that, that's not a good habit, and I've worked on that and will continue to. Uh, so I, I appreciate the patience that uh, people have with me in that. Uh, in ministering, we need to be ready to listen to those who need help. Few people do this. Few people do it. Very few people can listen well. They like to talk. They don't like to listen. And uh, that ex- helps to explain the spiritual sickness that's so prevalent in, our, in Christianity today, in our churches today, because people just won't listen. They'll talk, they'll unload on you, but they don't want to hear what comes back to them. And then here's an interesting statement he makes in verse 2. Let this be your consolations. This is the point Job has gotten to. Maybe at the first when he saw them coming, way back in chapter 1 or chapter 2 when they showed up, he's thinking, oh good, my friends are here, they're going to have such nice things to say, they're going to encourage me, they're going to uplift me, And uh, until they started talking. Now, now, He's beyond the point of wanting them to say something nice or to say something encouraging. Now he's resorted to, let this, you're listening, let this be your consolations. If you'll just listen to me, that's all the comfort I need. I find that fascinating. Uh, I don't need words from you to be comforted. I just need you to listen. Uh, There is great comfort in being listened to. Why do you think people pay psychiatrists? just to listen to them, because there's comfort in that. And how discouraging it is when you are trying to unburden yourself or to lay out your heart and immediately the speeches start coming at you. That's what's what's happening to Job here. Uh, How desperately we need uh, people and friends that will just listen and when we have something that we're burdened about. Now, Job's friends failed to give him any comfort. They were so busy criticizing him, they didn't uh, do any comforting. Sometimes when people are burdened uh, or hurting, the best way, best thing we can do is just, just to let them speak. Let them get it off their heart, get it off their mind. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to be just like Job. They're going to say things that are whack. They're out, off base, like Job did about God. God doesn't care. He's forgotten me. He's a million miles away. But his pain is speaking. And it would have done them well just to listen to him. Let him hear it out. You, you know, how many of you maybe are built like this? I know many of us are where the, our pain can be assuaged just by us verbally getting it out of our system and having somebody listen to it uh, is so important. Listening will often do more good for a troubled person than any advice you can give. Can I say that again? Listening will do more good for a troubled soul than any advice you can give. I know that hurts our pride, but it is so true. I, I've learned this. In hospital visits, I'll confess to you, I used to hate hospital visits. I hated to go because I didn't know what to say. I felt so awkward. I would get in there, I just, I wouldn't know what to say. I didn't know, you know, there's a certain amount of bodily fluid discussions I like to have. You know, if there's surgeries going on or something, there's just, uh, and I don't know what's appropriate to ask about. I don't know. And so it was just a very awkward thing. I haven't, it doesn't bother me anymore because I learned something. You don't have to say anything. Shut up. Just go listen. You know, a lot of times, that's what people like. Just go and and uh, be there. I remember with Miss Della, um, many hours, just sat with her. 
didn't say anything. Didn't uh, she didn't say anything? Well, it was a, after a very short time, she couldn't anyway. But but uh, there was times we just we just sat together, and and uh, that comfort of just being there. Here, his friends did uh, for for seven days, just sat with him, and uh, that can be a help too. He said, "Let that be your consolation. Let that be my comfort. If you'll just listen to me, man, there's something in that." Look at verse four. Uh, he, then he gives the complaint. So he talked about the character of the listening, the comfort from the listening. I'll look at the complaint. As for me, is my complaint to man? If it were so, why should it not my spirit be troubled? Job says the main problem in this, these troubles is not with man, but with God. That's the questions he has. That's what baffles him so much. The fact that he doesn't understand why God is letting this happen. Uh, Job had trouble with his friends and their speeches and their failure to listen but his biggest problem was, why did God let this happen to me? Why did he bring this trouble on me? That's what he's constantly talking about. So, and then move to the caution in the listening, verse number five. Mark me and be astonished and lay your hand upon your mouth. The suggestion that Job gives his friends here is that they should do this. Have you ever wanted somebody to put their hand over their mouth? Or have you ever wanted to put your hand over somebody's mouth? That's what Job is saying. What you're doing is not helping. Put your hand over your mouth. Uh, this is the only reason he said it this way is because duct tape had not been invented yet. So this is why he said hand. Otherwise, he'd have said, "I want to duct tape your mouth." Uh, then in the courage for the listening. Even when I remember, I'm afraid and trembling, taking hold of my flesh. Job's message is scary. It's, it takes courage for him to talk about this. It's scary for Job to talk about the wicked and what God does to the wicked because. Uh, he's in a mess. Now, his friends are flippant about it. Job is not flippant. And so he, uh, he, is, he is going to open up here about the wicked. Now, Job does what these other guys have not done. We're going to see a complete turnaround in talking about the wicked here in chapter 21 that we have seen in all the prior 20 chapters uh, because they have been talking almost in every chapter what happens to the wicked, the fate of the wicked, and uh, the troubles that come upon them. They have been trying to prove the point, Job, you're wicked, and it's proven because troubles come upon you, and so because troubles come upon the wicked, you have to be wicked. Uh, it's Job's now going to do something different. He's going to paint a picture that's quite different than what his three friends have said. They have painted a very dark portrait of the wicked on the earth. Job is going to paint a different picture. Uh, he's going to talk about the wicked enjoying good times and not bad times. The picture that Job is trying to portray here is, it argues against their, them applying trouble because of wickedness to him. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, it starts in verse number 7. The prosperity of the wicked. They, the wicked often fare very well in this world. Is that not a fact? A lot of wicked people are very successful. Uh, a lot of wicked people are having, you could say, they're living charmed lives. They have no... Uh, I, I saw a, a meme the other day. Somebody put on as just a, making some kind of point about Paris Hilton talking about all the woes. She said, every bad thing that can happen to a person has happened to me. Seriously doubt that. Born with a silver spoon, wealthy, you know, never worked a day in her life. So I, I doubt that's the case, and she understands that. But uh, a lot of wicked people live... Um, uh, a very prosperous life. Uh, look at verse 7, the days of the wicked. Wherefore do the wicked live, um, become old, yet 
yea, are mighty in power. So he observed that the wicked people often live for a long time as compared to the righteous. We still see that today. Uh, sometimes Hollywood celebrities uh, li- you know, live wicked lives or, you know, have, I think of Bob Hope. You know, did he ever not have a cigar in his, in his hand or his mouth? Lived to, I don't know how long he was, uh, how, long, how old he was, but he, was, he lived uh, well into his 90s. Uh, while great preachers of the Word of God die in their 50s or 60s or younger, um, there's, there's something, this is something Job's friends haven't considered, but they need to, and he's bringing it out. Then he moves on, and, and not only the days of the wicked, but the dollars of the wicked are mighty in power. Look at verse 13. It says, they spend their days in wealth. Now, the word translated power here means wealth. It's the same word translated to the word train in First Kings 10.2 when it talks about the great wealth of Queen Sheba when she came to check out Solomon's process in life. The, the wicked often are very well to do on earth. They spend their days enjoying their wealth. This is in contrast of what his friends have said. They have been talking about how uh, the wicked are always miserable. They're always full of trouble. Well, you know that's not true. A lot of times they live very comfortable lives their whole life. And then uh, number three, the descendants of the wicked. Look at verse number eight. Their seed is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. Verse 11 says they send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. Uh, the wicked often have healthy children who thrive in their achievements. The wealthy, often being the wicked, are the ones that are able to send their children to Yale and Harvard and places like that. Uh, while righteous families who often have sick children, uh, they often have, uh, uh, their children are often not the star, the football stars or the uh, Harvard graduates. So uh, he's just trying to point out this this inequality that that they're ch- keep talking about. Uh, this they they want to talk about uh, everything's fair. Wicked get trouble. Righteous everything goes good. It's not true. The righteous don't always have everything go their way, and the wicked don't always everything go against their way. In fact, it's often reversed. Job's pointing that out. Look at then number four: the dread of the wicked. Their houses are safe from fear. Verse nine. Neither is the rod of God upon them. They, the wicked are sometimes in a very peaceful situation. They live in gated communities. They do not live in crime-ridden neighborhoods. I think of my, the word wicked has a face attached when I say it. I probably shouldn't say it publicly, but Nancy Pelosi. All right, so um, I think of somebody when I, uh, I think of wicked people. Um, they don't. They don't live in, in, in Compton. They don't live in, uh, in the ghetto. They live in gated communities. They're safe. They have security guards and, and, uh, they, they enjoy a peaceful existence without all these problems. That's why a lot of those hypocrites don't care about the border problem because the border problem ain't gonna affect them. They're way protected from that stuff. And, uh, so how do Job's friends deal with that situation? He's trying to bring this out and make it clear to them. Look, uh, number five, the discipline of the wicked. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Now, it appears to Job that often God does not punish the wicked for their evil life. Is this not true? Don't we see this inequity, this, uh, this lack of justice in our day? Sure we do. They go through life doing much wickedness, 
and uh, don't experience the discipline that comes to God's people when the same thing when they do the same thing. I think of another name, Hunter Biden. Oh, he's getting away with murder, isn't he? Bill Clinton got away with all kinds of stuff. Uh, they they just seem to skate by, and everything seems to work out all right. And so the answer to this inequity is not to discourage us, but it is for us to realize their end is really where it's all going to come full circle. The psalmist was troubled by this. He he hated to see the the the, the wickedness successes and how everything good seemed to happen to them until he said in Psalm seventy three seventeen he said until. I understood their end. Now that, that's what all come full circle. Would you rather be a billionaire on earth living in the lap of luxury for 60 years and die and go to hell? Or would you rather live in the kind of poverty that preachers live in, you know, on earth and, and go to heaven at the end of your life? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's what the psalmist came to the realization of. This life isn't all there is. Now eternity is the great equalizer. Eternity, everything will come uh, fair. Everything will be sorted out there. There the wicked will not do well and uh, that, like they do in life. Job's friends believe that the wicked could not do well on this earth at all. That's a flat-out lie. Anybody knows that. The wicked can do very well on the earth. And uh, Job is arguing that. And so uh, this is the point he's making. Now, God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's a compassionate God. He gives certain blessings to all people. Matthew 5.45, that ye be may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. He blesses the wicked sometimes, just like he blesses us, because God desires everyone to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. His patience with the wicked is giving them un Undue opportunity to be saved. Just continuing to give this opportunity. Second Peter 3.15, an account, this is an interesting verse, that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. He, he, he is long-suffering so that we might see people come to, to Christ. We, we want to see the wicked destroyed. But that's not God's heart. In His love and His grace, He wants them to be saved. If we think eternally, we think, eternal, we think it's such a tragedy that... Um, George Soros is still kicking. All the wickedness that he's done in this world. And then last year, I hear about a young uh, pastor. I say young because he was my age. And he dropped dead of a heart attack. He had four little children at home. And uh, serving the Lord in ministry. And I think, he's, he goes, but George Soros and his ilk are still alive. Well, if we think eternity, uh, he's in heaven forevermore. And George Soros, I mean, unless something that his testimony doesn't show forth, is not headed there. You know, I'm not trying to be a judge here, but I mean, just judging by his life. And so God gives him time. Now, God's mercy is everlasting, and so he continues to give them this. Uh, God's patience with the wicked should not upset us. It should behoove us to try to reach them. And to go out and, and uh, you know, witness to them and pray for them. Instead of envying them, we ought to seek to see them converted. And that would be a blessing if we would think that way. Number six, the delivering for the wicked. Look at verse 10. Their bull gender, gendereth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. This speaks about the productivity of the wicked. Their animals deliver their young successfully. Let's put modern application to it. 
They have great success in sales. Their contracts win out over the competition. They win the lottery. They get great promotions and awards and recognitions. They're the Nobel Prize winners. That's the modern equivalent of what he's saying there. I think it's Stephen Fry. Uh, he has denounced God. This is what he said about God. God is an utterly evil, capricious, and monstrous maniac if he were to exist, which he does not. Um, you know, what, when you hear, I'd, I'd want to like step away if I hear him say that, and he's standing close in my vicinity. You know, you expect lightning bolt. But he continues to be successful. If you want, if you go to his Wikipedia page, you can scroll and scroll and scroll through all his awards and recognitions and everything. He's a he's a homosexual man. He's a wicked, God hating, um, has said horrible things, and yet uh, he he's named the most uh, second most influential gay person in Britain in May 2007. He's got a whole bunch of a list of awards and recognitions. He has a net worth of 40 million dollars. You know, we we look at camps and missionaries and uh, things like that that desperately could use more money and, and God lets them have all this and we're struggling? Well, that's, that's the situation Job's trying to bring forth. He's saying, if you are trying to tell me that the wicked get nothing but evil happening to them and the righteous get nothing but good, you're speaking nonsense. And he just brings this forth and we need to understand that. So Stephen Fry's not sitting on an ash heap scraping scores with pot, uh, his uh, sores with pottery. All right, he's doing quite well, um, but you cannot judge a character of a man by his lack or his success. Okay, it's it's what's in here that counts. And then the delights of the wicked, verse twelve. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. Uh, the wicked are able to go to the fancy restaurants. They go to the symphonies and all these uh, symphonies and the and and uh, all the entertainment. They uh, live a life of glamour. They're the ones that have the red carpet rolled out for them. And uh, meanwhile, many righteous people can't afford to eat out or uh, certainly not, not uh, go to Broadway shows and all those different things. And so even though they're righteous, they may be too poor to buy these extra delights that the wicked enjoy. Uh, Job is trying to bring out, hey, look, it's not what you've been presenting is not true. You see the difference in the tone here? All this time we've been talking about the wicked and all the horrible things that happened, which much of that was true, but Job is pointing out the other side of the picture. And then number eight, the death of the wicked. Number 13, in a moment they go down to the grave. Now, this refers to the wicked dying without long, agonizing health problems. But they die peacefully. Sometimes they don't suffer long with ailments like Job is suffering. Many of them die comfortably. Now, I'm not saying all of them. But many of them do. Uh, the, the other side of that coin, though, by the way, is when they do die, they cease to be comfortable. Okay, We have to understand that end. That's when their suffering only begins. But Job is picturing the life of the wicked on earth, what we see with the human eye. He's trying to bring this out to them. Just because trouble befell me does not mean I'm wicked, because the wicked certainly live a high and mighty, many of them. Look at the number, uh, that was the, um, the uh, uh, all the talk, talking about the, the uh, production of the wicked or all the things that happened to them, the good stuff. Now look at the profaneness of the wicked. Verse 14. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit should we have if we pray unto him? And uh, he talks about the fact that they, the, they uh, prosper in fact, in spite of the fact that they are terribly profane, want nothing to do with God. 
And this is interesting. Look at the reason for the profaneness. Therefore. So because of their prosperity, the therefore is talking about the prosperity in the previous verses. Because of their prosperity, they, uh, it actually is what makes them profane, anti-God. Isn't that interesting? When the purse is full, the positions are high, the prestige is great, the possessions are many, profanity, uh, profaneness will be the result more than piety. Blah, blah, blah. Say that ten times. Uh, wealth and health keep more people away from church than poverty and pain. That's a sad thing, but that's the way it is, and that's what he's saying here. Therefore, because of their prosperity, they want nothing to do with God. Depart from us. It's a re- not, not a request, but a command. Depart from us. Now, I'm going to jump ahead because I have to finish up here. It goes on um, the, uh, the uh, profaneness of the wicked, the providing for the wicked, verse 16, the parting for the wicked, uh, from the wicked, verse 16, 17 and 18, the protection of the wicked, the punishment of the wicked, verses 19 through 21, the providence of the wicked, 22 through 25. But I want to get to the closing thoughts here um, that Job concludes. Look at verse number 27. Behold, I know your thoughts and the devices which you wrongfully imagine against me. He knows their philosophy about wicked suffering. This was a favorite philosophy of that time. If you are suffering, you're wicked. If you are not suffering, you're righteous. That's their mistaken philosophy. Job knew this is faulty, and he's trying to point this out. And so, you you wrongfully imagine this against me, he said. The word translated devices in that verse, number 27, is, means plot or intrigue or mischief. They, had, uh, they were trying to indict Job because of their troubles. It's implied here that their attitude toward Job is that they are not altogether unhappy that he is suffering. It was better than them at some point. It's human nature for us to see those better than us taken down a notch. We like that. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very fleshly feeling, but that's how we're built. And then uh, the last thing he does is rebuke his friends for their poor counsel. Uh, verse 34, how then comfort ye me in vain? That's the futility of their counsel. Then look at the falseness of their counsel. Verse 34, in your answers there remaineth falsehood. And so he's calling him out on all this. But I thought it was interesting that Job is trying to set the picture straight that they have been, for really, for basically 18 chapters, they've been trying to preach at him that trouble in a man's life means he's wicked. Well, we, don't, we know that's not true. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. And how many times do we, with a little bit of envy, look at the world and how easy they've got it, how everything just seems to fall in their lap. And uh, let's not be envious of it, because like the psalmist, we understand their end. Okay, Let's do something about that. Instead of envying their current, let's see if we can help them in their end by... Uh, winning in the Christ. Father, thank you for this chapter.